I think people have different ways of going about different startups and everyone's journey is a little bit different. Mine already, I think you're kind of getting the sense that it was a little bit like not planned from day one. Like I didn't come to Vietnam with the idea to do this and I kind of fell into it. But the other thing I, when I reflect on it, it's like, why a startup? Uh, I think it's like finding a startup is maybe not so different than achieving mastery in anything. And for example, like how do you become a great podcaster? How do you become a great author or artist? There's a saying that's you say, just stay on the bus. Meaning like if you think about how a bus lines work in a, in a city, uh, imagine you're in the middle of the city, you stay on the bus and for the first like, you know, first half an hour or so, first 10 stops, they're all the same. So you go to the same places, uh, everything's very similar. So for example, you're starting a company or, or starting a podcast, it's, it's not nothing special really happens in that first little phase, but you stay on the bus long enough and eventually like they filter out and you get farther and farther away and you start to get to places that no one else can go to. Welcome to the MHV Podcast. We speak with leading founders, VCs, and operators on their journey in Southeast Asia. Learn more at www.monkshill.com. Hey, Charles. Uh, really excited to have you on the MHV Podcast. Uh, you are building out something truly amazing, which is really helping so many people really get that education that they need to have to get to the next stage in their life. Uh, and you also happen to be another alumnus of UC Berkeley, so go Bears. Uh, so, hey, welcome aboard. I'd love to have you introduce yourself. Yeah, long-time listener, first-time contributor. It's an honor to be here, uh, Jeremy. My name is Charles. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Coder School. Uh, online coding school based in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Amazing. So I've got to ask, what were you like back at UC Berkeley? Were you very hippie? Did you ever own a tie-dye shirt? Or were you very much a computer science degree, you know, inside the basement? Wow. So it was a long time ago now. Um, but yeah, actually, I was uh, a little bit less hippie than that. I would say that there's a lot of time in the basement. So at, at Berkeley, like the computer labs in the basement where there's no windows, uh, just dark all the time. So I spent a couple of nights in the in, in that basement before. Um, but overall, I would say uh, one thing I think about a lot is, yeah, Berkeley was full of kind of tie-dye hippies types, but really more than that, it was about somewhere where people were unafraid to be themselves. So for example, uh, we used to have this guy on campus who would dress up in like a pink bodysuit from top, from head to toe, just in like pink spandex and ride around on a unicycle uh, and do stuff. And that was like kind of normal. Like you'd see the guy, uh, we'd, we'd wave. And I think about that frequently because actually I think Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, as we call it here, it's a little bit similar in that people are really like unafraid to express themselves. Uh, just the other day, uh, I saw a guy in the park with pet squirrels here, I thought, whoa, that's a, that's pretty weird. But I kind of really enjoy those types of environments where people are just genuine, authentic, and uh, not afraid to express themselves. Yeah, you're making me miss that because I too was also pretty much in the basement all the time, <laughs> uh, and it was nice to just hang out. I mean, I too actually managed to at least wear a couple of tie-dye shirts as well, so I still have them. And my wife always nags me every time I wear them. <laughs> and, at home uh that being said you know i wasn't that crazy out there you know i was just 
you know, studious one. Yeah, there was kind of a nice contrast, right, uh, between that, um, you know, freedom and creativity out there and also, like, you know, the rigor uh, that you're kind of putting yourself through. Um, and what's interesting is that there uh, you become a computer engineer, right, at Palm, at Volkswagen, in, you know, uh, gaming, you know, companies acquired by Walmart Labs, you know, at social local services for a solid eight years in, in SF in the Bay Area. So what was that like, you know, across the spree of startups? Yeah, I, I sort of started out at big companies and got smaller over time. And yeah, what was it like? There's a lot of things I think about, but the first thing I think about actually when I think about my computer science career, uh, especially since you brought up college, was yeah, college is really hard. Like yeah, studious, uh, I was, uh, maybe studious is a bit of a stretch, um, but uh, we worked pretty hard in school. And I was really surprised the first couple of years of what working was like. And I actually felt really useless for a really long time in those jobs. So, you know, you learn school, you, you, you get your good grades, and you expect to sort of hit the ground running at your first job. And that was very much not the case for me. Um, but the one thing I'm really grateful for, and one of the reasons I personally got into computer science to begin with, is the opportunity to try lots of different things. So you just mentioned like e-commerce, uh, gaming, automotive, self-driving cars. I've had a chance to do a lot of different things. And that's one reason why I love computer science or kind of learning how to code, because it really opens up the types of possibilities you can work in. Uh, I can't think of another industry where I could have tried so many different things. Any crazy stories that you have from like working as a you know, startup engineer? Any war stories? Any war stories? I think one of the coolest projects I ever worked on, uh, one of my favorite jobs was actually at that Volkswagen you mentioned. So it was at the Electronics Futures Laboratory. That's the lab that made the first self-driving cars. Um, I wasn't smart enough to work on that project directly, but I did lots of cool stuff. We, did, we made a robot that uh, would sit in the car and we had this like interesting, uh, there's all these interesting things about cars actually about how we spend so much time, well, in the US especially, you spend so much time in the car, but it's not a fundamentally uh, user-centric experience. So, you know, you take lessons on how to drive a car. The car doesn't really try to make it easier for you to drive. Um, but one thing we're looking in particular is things about safety. So today, like a lot of things in car safety are very like punishing. So it's like, let me beep uh, this signal to annoy you until you put on your seatbelt, for example. Uh, and what one experiment we worked on was we built a little robot uh, that sat in your car dashboard and expressed emotions for you. So we actually had that robot look worried or scared uh, when you didn't put in your seatbelt, for example. And we wondered, hey, or instead of the check engine light, we had the robot look sick and try to like give your car a personality uh, and see how that influenced user behavior. And that was a pretty weird project. Uh, we worked on it with the MIT Media Lab, actually, and they're responsible for all the kind of creativity there. But that was a fun project. What was um, that? Like, did people like it or people didn't like it? What was the learnings from that? Social robotics. People did like it. And so there have been a couple of products that have followed up from that. Um, ours was a R and it was an R and D lab, so it was not really a productionable. But I think the kind of one of the products that came out of it was little assistance for your car. So if you imagine, uh, they later built like a small little kind of robot that would sit on your dashboard or like a little toy uh, that had some ability to emote as well. 
but I think you're kind of seeing like the next generation that with the voice assistants and things like that and really curious what will become. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's awesome to hear. I'm so curious about, you know, then the next stage, right? Which is, you know, there you're in SFV area and then you decide to move to Vietnam, right? So there you are. So tell us what was going through your mind. What helped you make that decision at that point of time? I mean, obviously, I think there's a different decision between why you moved versus why you stayed, but why did you move? Sure. Um, so at the time, uh, I was really enjoying working at different startups. And to be honest, I was fortunate enough to work at some startups that did okay. And it all looked very easy to me. When you're around someone who's good at what they do, uh, what they do looks easy. Uh, but then you realize later how good that person was. So for me, it was, I worked at a few companies, they did well. And I thought, hey, I could start my own company. Um, you know, as an engineer, you work pretty hard. I'm like, hey, I could, couldn't possibly take more hours that I'm putting in now. So I worked on various startup ideas, uh, a lot of crazy ideas I don't talk about. We tried to start a dog walking startup. We tried to start a tool for personal trainers to train people better. We tried uh, personal analytics around GitHub commits. We had a lot of different ideas. None of them really took off uh, at the time. So basically, I was feeling a little discouraged. And actually, living in the Bay Area is also expensive. So after about a year and a half to two years of this, I realized that um, perhaps it was time for me to go back to working for someone. And that's when I decided, okay, right before I do this, I should try something different. Uh, and that's what kind of led me to choose Vietnam as a point. I originally only thought about staying here for a few months uh, just to get something out of my system to, to try something else. Uh, and that's how I ended up here. But then one thing led to another and six years later, still here happily working on coder school. That's amazing. And I've got to ask then, so uh, how did you fall in love with uh, Coder School and why, you know, uh, take something that you knew so well, right? Because you know coding so well. You've been a coder for such a long time. You study it. You worked in it across multiple companies. So why did you decide to say, hey, let me take something I'm good at and start teaching it? Was, was it something you were teaching before? Was, you know, what was the context of all of that? Yeah, actually, so... Uh, the context before that, there were two things that happened that made me really interested in coding education. One was I took a course at a coding school uh, that's still around called CodePath, and they've been great supporters of Coder School, uh, the founders there. But um, it's the first time I had taken a course since college, and I took it maybe like 10 years after I graduated. And it kind of blew my mind because I was like, hey, this is really useful. And wow, I, I haven't learned anything new really in a classroom setting. Since, since university. And I thought that was kind of weird how you spend the first, you know, 20 something years of your life, basically full-time student. And then you go from that to zero. Uh, and many people never go back. And so it was a really good experience for me. I enjoyed it a lot. And what I had learned there was iPhone programming. So despite having been like my first job out of college was working for this company called Palm, which actually made the first smartphone. Uh, there's a documentary about it now out actually. Uh, you can, it's, uh, it's called the Handspring Trio uh, at the time. And or Handspring Visor was it? It's this company called Handspring that uh, built the, which later became Palm, which built the first smartphone. So I worked it there, and I, I made smartphones for the first couple years of my career, which is awesome. But I remember when the iPhone came out, and that caused a lot of waves in industry. And eventually, of course, the iPhone has now won out. Um, but even being like on the kind of vanguard of that, I never really learned how to program iPhone apps. Um, and it wasn't until I actually sat down, took a course many years later that I was like, oh, now I know how to build iPhone apps. It had been all of those things I've always told myself, like, hey, I'll, I'll learn. 
but I never actually was able to complete the loop until I signed up for a course. So that was really interesting about how, you know, so there's something about taking a class that just works and helped me accomplish something I've been thinking about for almost like a decade, uh, how to build apps properly. At the same time, so uh, I had that really great educational experience. I also started teaching as a result part-time for a friend's coding school. So coincidentally, one of my housemates uh, had founded one of the first online coding schools called Block.io and raised a bunch of money for it. And I became one of the mentors there and I really enjoyed the experience. Uh, that was also almost a decade ago and I still actually get updates from some of the people on LinkedIn saying that they're moving up, senior engineers, VPs of engineering now, it's so cool. Um, but that really helped me also kind of work with people and see the potential for change. Uh, people can totally change their careers, learn coding in, in three to six months become totally new people. I thought it was cool. Uh, and so when I came to Vietnam, these both these things kind of collided, where in 2015, when I first arrived, the biggest trend worldwide was actually started by a Vietnamese person. It was the game Flappy Bird. So if anyone remembers that game, it's that little bird that would pop on your screen that just took over the world, like in a way that's like, kind of never been done since actually, I would say. But that was created by like a, a some Vietnamese guy in the base in his parents' basement in Hanoi, and so at the time there was so much interest around iPhone programming. As a result, it had been what I had just learned and started teaching. So those things kind of collided, and I, I opened an iPhone programming course as the first course at Coder School. Wait, so Flappy Bird, what, what was that? The same time frame? Yeah, what, did it trigger a wave of people wanting to learn coding? Is that? Is that yeah. what happened? Is I really think oh, yeah. so. People were like, hey, this like Flatbird, this guy's making like this, you know, like such a big impact in the world and tons of money. And how do you build stuff like this? Is it hard? And people just sort of like were started getting really interested in it. And if you really think about it, uh, and like I, I'm sort of adding my own inference here, but it's like, whoa, that guy did it. Well, I could do that too. And it really hit home. Uh, and the fact that the next gen, like the next huge world phenomenon could come from Vietnam or anywhere just by one person, I think it's really powerful and kind of helped inspire a lot of people. So now I've got to ask, for that first class, do you remember what projects they were trying to build? Were there people trying to make Flappy Bird clones? So actually, like, uh, for the marketing for that class, we were trying to, you know, uh, get people to sign up. Anyone who's tried to learn programming probably knows, like, the first thing you try to learn is a to-do list, things like that. So we'd run, like, workshops, like, hey, build a, learn how to build a to-do list with uh, iPhone program, iOS. Um, those did okay. People were sort of like signed up and would come. But then we tried to, hey, build your own Flappy Bird in iOS workshop, like sold out immediately. People are like, whoa, I can do that. And it's actually like <laughs> really easy to build. So I think today, even uh, you could build something. Anyone can build Flappy Bird in like two hours, uh, at least like a, a basic version. I am so excited to uh, put a link code to your Flappy Bird workshop in <laughs> sure. this uh, description. I got to dig this. it up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm listening to this podcast. I can learn two more hours of listening after this and I can learn how to do uh, Flappy Bird. So there you are. You learned how to take something that you've already been passionate about for a long time, which is coding. And now you're taking that into teaching. And one interesting thing is, of course, is that, you know, everybody can teach. Is this that? not everybody makes it a startup, right? <laughs> so, you know, why make it a startup, right? Why make it something be large or try to be large or try to scale it or be huge, right? Versus keeping it small. There's so many small coding academies 
uh, around the world for the you know one city for the one district right yeah it's a really good question and i think people have different ways of going about different startups and everyone's journey is a little bit different mine already i think you're kind of getting the sense that it was a little bit like not planned from day one like i didn't come to vietnam with the idea to do this and i kind of fell into it but the other thing i when i reflect on it it's like why a startup uh i think it's like finding a startup is maybe not so different than achieving mastery in anything and for example like how do you become a great podcaster how do you become a great author or artist there's a saying that's you say just stay on the bus meaning like if you think about how a bus lines work in a, in a city uh, imagine you're in the middle of the city you stay on the bus and for the first like you know first half an hour or so first 10 stops they're all the same so you go to the same places uh everything's very similar so for example you're starting a company or, or starting a podcast it's it's not nothing special really happens in that first little phase but you stay on the bus long enough and eventually like they filter out and you get farther and farther away and you start to get to places that no one else can go to and that's very much how I feel like my experience with, with Coder School was. Yeah, at the beginning, a Flappy Bird workshop, anyone can do that. Um, and in fact, there are many people. And But how do you stick with it? How do you stay with it? And how do you sort of start discovering more and more about education, more and more about how you can train people at scale or what, how to really deliver great experiences? And that's like what I think I'm glad I stuck with it because like now I feel like we, we are starting to get out of the main city and starting to get into really exciting places now. As you build that out and scale it out, what does it allow you to teach in a way that you couldn't teach before, right? Because before this, you were teaching it yourself or you're teaching in a small group format. I guess, what are you getting to do now as you know, a school, as a startup that I couldn't have gotten before as a student? You know, What makes you special that makes me say, yes, I want to learn from not Charles as a person, but Charles as a founder, as a leader of this organization in terms of his spirit and ethos and his differentiation, right, as a product. Yeah, and I wish I could uh, explain all the different things we're trying to do. We're definitely still, like, you know, searching for what to build, but what we always want to do, we've wanted to do this since day one, was provide opportunity for everyone, everywhere. So part of the thing that really attracted me when I came to Vietnam was I realized that, hey, like, people didn't have access to quite the same quality of experience in education that I did. I talked about that great class I took uh, about iPhone programming. That class didn't exist here. Um, and as a result, like people just didn't have the opportunity to, to, to learn. And so that's what we've really been focusing on. And how we do that, I think there's a lot of pieces to it, but kind of at the big picture, um, one thing I really like about education uh, and reason why I think a lot more people should be working on it. It's like the world's largest service industry. So Peng at Monk's Hill has a, a thesis about what they invest, what you guys invest in. And it's about, hey, we like to use technology to disrupt service industries. Uh, and I think that's one of the theses uh, of many of the startups at Monk's Hill. But if you think about it, like education is one of the few service industries that affects everyone. There's like, you know, uh, an audience of 7 billion out there. And for such a business, it's like one of the least customer-centric things as well. So it's the same observation I had about cars, but education as well, too. Like there's not a lot of focus on how to make a student uh, succeed and, and who they'll ultimately rest on. So for example, like I think uh, one of our earliest students for our course, our full-time course that helps you become an engineer, uh, he was a student at a top at, one of the, at the top university here, Science University, and he was a mechatronics major. 
he was doing well, but junior year, he discovered that he really liked programming. Uh, he wanted to build software uh, instead of sort of robots and, and mechatronic stuff. But the university wouldn't let him change his major. He had to finish these credits at this time. And to me, that like blows my mind that this institution, like you're paying these people for this thing and you're going through all the things they do, but they won't let you like kind of work to find find a good solution to what you want. Like as a customer, you just want to work on cool stuff and get a career building the knowledge you need to, to do what you want to do. And so when I think about these types of systems, that's what really inspires me at Coder School. It's like, hey, how can we really provide people what they really want? And how can we listen to them? Um, I, I don't like to think of like when a student fails at Coder School, like it happens from time to time, that student somehow isn't succeeding. It's not because the student's lazy. It's not because a student, because you know something's wrong with that. It's like, oh, how can we provide a better experience? Uh, and that's what I really will hope we can bring to education moving forward is how can we really have a customer centric experience that delivers what people want? Yeah. I mean, that's something that's really rare. And I think the truth is that education is not customer centric because it's about getting as many people true from point A to point B at lowest cost possible in a very uh, batch format. And what's interesting is that you are bringing high quality education and making that accessible. What's interesting from my personal perspective as well is that, you know, you've also noticed that there is that wave of democratization in terms of like coding education in the US. But what is that level of democratization for the middle class or the lower class in the US is actually still priced way too high uh, for emerging markets across the world. For example, Vietnam, right? Still priced for the upper class effectively. Um, and so it's interesting where I feel like you've actually been able to go one level deeper and say, actually, uh, we can go, there's a huge white space where there's so many countries, uh, in the rest of the world from America's perspective, slash the majority of the world from the majority of the world's perspective, uh, really needs a coding education that is not US centric, but is really developed for the rest of the world. Yeah. I keep using the rest of the world. I hate using the word rest of the world because it shows a US centric dynamic and I hate myself so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, but it's, it's, it's absolutely what we need to be thinking about. I mean, the quote unquote rest of the world, but that's where all the innovation is going to happen. I mean, you get the really high level metrics about uh, what automation is going to do for the world, how, how the future of work is going to change. All that's going to happen out here. And so I think the changes will be much, much larger and much more important large sweeping changes and that's where the education start. But I also think like, if you think about how these trends could happen, like we would, I would love to export this to the US later, right? We can build a better experience that's more efficient uh, under like a different set of constraints. Like there's the saying about how constraints breed innovation. I think we have really interesting constraints here that we can learn from. Let's talk about constraints breeding innovation. What does that mean to you personally? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you, particularly with education, you talked about how we can how we can make accessible. It, it's a big kind of thing for us. But if you have like the ability to pay like a hundred thousand dollars a year for education, I think that's a very different question than how can you do it for, let's say, a tenth of that price, or for ten times more people, um, or even for things like when people don't have great internet connections. Like, how are you going to solve these problems, um, or when people don't have the right background? And there's just like all these problems. And when you have, I think the other thing too is like when you're kind of in a more developed market, you have a lot of advantages that let you focus on just a small part of the problem. 
So here, like, like there's a big reason why there aren't enough engineers. I think what you're, what you're saying here is uh, there's an innovation dynamic that's happening regardless, right? And the constraints are enabling an aspect of it that is pretty rare. Um, I guess when you think about Vietnam as a certain constraints, what constraints about Vietnam do you think is the set of constraints that you think would breed or be relevant for America later? Um, I guess one is GDP per capita. Would that be one aspect of it? Like, you know, the price points. Uh, you're designing for a lower set of price points. I mentioned that earlier. Um, I'm so curious. Maybe. I think also a big one here is it's a pretty big deal when someone takes a coder school class. So I think in the US a lot, like people will be like, oh, I'll try like learning coding, see how it is. But here at coder school, uh, it's terrifying to, to me because like if we let someone down, someone really kind of puts down which, which is still a substantial investment in something that doesn't work out. It's quite, quite disastrous. It can be quite bad. Um, so I think there's a lot of responsibility here, but at the same time, like it's, it's such a high reward thing. So here we have the ability to really kind of like 10 X, uh, an earning potential over a lifetime, um, or even just like two X or three X within, within six to 12 months. So the economic impact we have is, is so large that I get excited about that. It's, it's like, you know, great power, great responsibility type of dynamic, but that's what always like kind of drew me to color school at the beginning or like kind of solving problems out here. Like these are, actually, if you think about kind of, uh, it, the marketing around coding is really interesting. I think in the US actually you get a lot more about aspirational stuff. Like, hey, learn coding is the future, it's really cool. And I think that's really true. I just told you about how much I love coding because it allowed me to explore so many different diverse interests of mine uh, and learn a lot. At the same time, like I really like that in a more emerging market, it's much clearer what people want. It's like, hey, I want to create value. I want to have a better career. I want to make more money. I have a better job. And it's it's really actually refreshing. And the way our marketing works is it's more about that. So at Coder School, we guarantee that you'll get a job within six months after graduating uh, in IT. And so that speaks really a lot better to the market out here. And I, and I like that. It helps. Our, our students are motivated. They know what they want. Uh, and they go get it. Awesome. I love how you've been learning and been able to use that constraint as a way to actually give you more freedom, right? To innovate around those. And I love that aspect of it. Uh, actually, on that note, what's interesting as well is that I also Charles gotten a chance to observe you uh, not only learn about the constraints of coding uh, and education, but also learn about fundraising as a founder as well, which is a whole new skill set that both you and I had no idea 10 years ago, right? Uh, and so how what would, would you say that you've learned about fundraising as a process uh, over time? Yeah, I have to preface with this with like I'm not an expert, <laughs> clearly, um, possibly just super lucky, but uh, I've learned a few things that I, I share with people. The first um, is that as an early founder, you're often very focused on what solution you're building, how well your solution works, and that's very important. But really the, the piece that I never thought about as much before fundraising was what the opportunity size is. So for most, most venture, if you're looking for venture-backed funding, mostly they're trying to make a big win. So you know they talk about unicorns, but they, it's really serious. Can this grow into a billion dollar business? And that's almost a prerequisite. If you build something that's wonderful, that works great, but doesn't have the, the possibility to grow into that huge business, it's probably not a good fit for venture capital. Um, and that's nothing against how good your product is or how good your team is. 
that's just like the kind of dynamics of the market you're in. So I think I learned a lot about that. But the second thing uh, I think you learn is how to evaluate what kind of investors you want um, and what draws you to certain people. And uh, the thing that I found myself really drawn to, and one reason I'm so happy to be working with MHV, is I really want to work with people that understand what it's like to build companies and specifically how hard and slightly irrational it is to build your own company. My favorite is, and this is my, this is my, my, my one life hack on how to fundraise, by the way, is most investors or VCs are also like very prolific speakers or writers out there. So just like Google them on YouTube, you can search for them on YouTube or Google their blog and try to read what they say and see how you feel and see if anything resonates with you. You know, before talking to Peng, I watched several of his talks on on YouTube and I was like, oh, wow, this guy has some really good points. It gives you something to talk about when you when you meet the person. But specifically for, so one of our partners is Justin uh, at Monk's Hill. And in your last podcast, he said something to me that was like, oh yeah, this is why I like working with this guy. Uh, your opening quote, the cold open for your podcast was Justin talking about how he got shingles, this horrible disease, because uh, he was so stressed out running his company. And first of all, I don't think he went into detail about how horrible that disease is, right? Because like, I haven't had it, but my I had a friend who had it. And my understanding is like, your skin hurts. Uh, and your skin is everywhere. So it, it's super unpleasant. But then like he, he followed that up, Justin followed that up with saying that sometimes he misses the build part of a company. Like I miss the build. And so I think that's like almost the profile person I would like to work with is someone who went through it, knows how terrible it is, always still misses it and wants to help other people get through it. So uh, that was like the thing that I was like, oh, this is this is the type of person I want to work with. And when fundraising, I think you not only have a, I mean, you want to be able to choose your money, but you also like have a better chance of getting funded by people you vibe with because they'll probably vibe with you and understand what you're trying to do and, and be more likely to support you. A lot of truth there. Uh, definitely triggering the part where you're making me feel like I'm missing the build as well. There you go. So you're uh, one of those people too. So you're also around a company, CEO, like you, you get it. Uh, and that's, <laughs> I think that's so important to me. I, I, other people have different opinions, but that's what was yeah. really important to me. So there you are, and you know you say that you have that fundraising life hacks, right? Which is uh, one was like really thinking about a billion dollar opportunity size. The second, of course, is um, making sure to Google, right? <laughs> you know, the partner and see if they resonate. Uh, let's talk about the second one first, and then we'll talk about the first one later. Uh, which is you know making sure that you resonate with the partner. What does it mean to resonate with a partner? So you know. And you talk about how Justin resonated with you because, you know, having a former operator is important to you. Why does it matter? What does it mean to resonate? Why does resonate matter? Why not just take someone with money from your perspective? Because that's like another way to look at it, right? Absolutely. And uh, money is important. Um, and I never understood that. And I, perhaps I have much to learn on this. But I think just like then the easy answer is one, people who you resonate with are more likely to actually give you money in the first place because you can communicate with them, you can explain your vision. Um, there's some people out there who will never get what you're trying to do. Um, and just that kind of resonation is like a shortcut to that. Um, but the second part is you really do work with that person. Um, so over time, when you're finding a company, uh, you need every help you can get. It's like running a company is hard. Uh, everyone who's there to help you with it is like a massive resource. And if you happen to have someone who's at a VC, they, they have a lot of influence over your company potentially, but also they just have a wealth of experience. 
So someone whom you resonate with is going to be more likely to be able to communicate to you their insights and their advice on how to tackle the challenges of running a company. Why is that important? I guess kind of going back to the five whys, not the Volkswagen way, I guess. But uh, <laughs> you know, like you know, being able to do that and build the company with you and be able to help you. Well, I think just like the very easy answer is, I mean, once you take funding from someone, you have a certain like responsibility to that person, uh, which which you should. If that person wants different things than you do, it'll be increasingly difficult to fulfill what that person wants while also doing what you want. And anytime that happens, it's a tax uh, on what you have to do. If I have to like sit there and make my investor update monthly update look really nice or kind of have to tweak it and can't just say exactly what I want to say, that's time I've spent not doing real work, in my opinion. Um, so kind of cutting down that is big. The second is I think really you want the, actually the work that happens is during bad times. So during good times, anyone can give you advice. Just keep doing what you're doing. Good job, Charles. Like uh, we, we always believe in you. Actually, when you really want to lean on on people for help is when things are, are are bad. When like, hey, like COVID just hit. What should I do? For example, uh, I think every kind of startup went through that. And the startups that had people that they could communicate openly with, much more likely to find solutions. Much more likely to talk openly about things. Um, you can only hide problems for so long at a company. Uh, they'll eventually come out. And so the more comfortable you are with someone or the better they understand you, I think the quicker you can get to that solution. Wow. I really, I think kind of hit the nail on the head here, right? Which is, it's not just about choosing the right VC, but to some extent there's a tax, right? When you're not with the right VC because you have the right to invest the update the perfect way, right? Um, and you're making me resonate because I, you're triggering some memories in me I see. Uh, about some investor updates I've written um, where I wrote it the right way, right, in retrospect, uh, versus the way I would have written if I was really the way I would describe it to the management team, right? Um, and that was an invisible tax um, that cost time. And, and the, the converse of that, like you said, was, you know, it, the tax was not just in terms of the friction, but also tax on what could have been if we had clear communication in terms of you know problem solving right and actually getting something done. Yeah, and like just the I, I will say like as a plug like I mean I have a I have a monthly update with with Justin Michelle my two partners at HV on on Tuesday and I'm looking forward to it. It's not like oh no like I need to like do this thing. It's like I'm I'm genuinely looking forward to it, and that's the kind of energy that I hope that you that you want. I, as a founder, you want things that give you energy a lot more than things that take away energy from you. Um, and so if your investor is taking energy away from you, that's going to, you're going to have to pay that somewhere. Oh, the energy tax. <laughs> nah. So I guess the key takeaway is like when you meet an investor, you think to yourself, is this person going to give me energy or is this person going to tax energy from me to, to work with? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the same for even like hires at your company, like you know anybody that you work with. I think, and again, like you're you're giving me energy now because you understand it, right? Because I'm like, oh man, like Jeremy gets what I'm talking about. But like, yeah, as a founder, like your energy is arguably one of your most precious resources. You, I can work hundreds of hours a week if I have the right energy. What are the energy taxes? Are there ways to sense or test, you know, what the energy tax would be um, in differentiating? Because I guess there are two aspects to it, right? Which is not every founder gets to choose investors because, you know, they go out to market and 
people get multiple investors. Some people only yeah. get one investor. Some people, lots of people, frankly, the majority will get zero investors. Correct. Uh, so a lot of people don't have a choice, right? And then, so I guess the question then is like, it feels almost like a privilege, right, to be able to choose investors that help you with energy rather than tax you. Um, I'm just wondering how you think about that you know, from your perspective. Yeah, like I don't want to make it sound like Coder School had like a million people to choose from, uh, and it was it was like I had to interview everyone. I mean, they're definitely yeah, not everyone can choose much, but I think the other thing I kind of realized too is I mean, people talk about how the goal of a company is not to fundraise, right? The goal of a company is to deliver to customers, to to build this. Your goal is to build something cool, and so if you're going to fundraise from someone, perhaps you have you have to make that judgment in your head. But like, if it's a huge energy suck from you you feel like it's not really going to help like you're just kind of delaying the inevitable uh at some point or really just kind of actually like hurting your chances of success i think there's always alternatives there's you're never forced to fundraise um no matter what you think um there's a there's old the old paul graham saying of like startups don't die like startup suicide right so you always have the chance you always kind of fight to, to live and so uh, i think that's what i recommend people sometimes feel like they have no choice but to accept a fundraise the funding from someone they're not keen on um and sometimes it's the right choice uh, to be clear uh, the energy from the money will 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 offset other things um but it's not always you, you never are forced to do it that is very true and i think on that similar note you, you we go back to that thing we promised to talk about which is also that billion dollar market size uh and when you said that i also was reminded someone was asking me last night and she was asking me, does it have to be a billion dollar market size to be a success? Um, and I figured, and you kind of mentioned that as well, you know, a billion dollar market size is just not a VC backable thing as well. And it's not necessarily a bad thing as well. So how do you kind of land on that thinking now? You know, you've had that conversation, that thinking, you know. So yes, you have to be a billion dollar market size to get VC capital. But do you have to be a billion dollar opportunity? How do you think about it? Should you write billion dollars in a slide? Should we aim for a billion dollars? How how where do you land on that? Yeah, and I'll, uh, this I answer that with like um, an analogy for my life, which is, and you may have had the similar experience, Jeremy. Uh, Asian parents, like, did your parents want you to be a doctor or a lawyer growing up? Uh, yeah, my mom wanted me to be a doctor. Yeah, think, exactly. Yeah, lawyer yeah. was too noisy, so. <laughs> okay, so my parents wanted me a doctor too. They they bought me uh, like little doctor toys when I was a kid and stuff. Um, that was very much their goal, and uh, part of it is because so my my dad's a professor, PhD, super smart guy. Um, went to Stanford in the eighties from Korea. It's amazing. Um, but like one thing that was really interesting to me is like in high school, one of our teachers had had retired to his regular job to come teach high school. Super cool guy, Mr. Norton, uh, taught physics, one of my favorite classes. But he shared that he, before he was teaching high school, he was the manager of a grocery store, like a Safeway. And he was like, oh, and we make, for some reason he like shared how much money he used to make as a manager of a Safeway. And I was like, you can make $150,000 like managing a Safeway. And then like, I sort of started asking around and like there was, uh, if you own a McDonald's, like if you, if you buy and own McDonald's, you're making like a million dollars a year, almost. If you're, it's a good McDonald's, and like sort of like my my career at the point was like, wait, like I, I want to be a professor or something, and you know, professors don't make that much money by a long shot. Even doctors, some doctor, most doctors don't make that much money as as running McDonald's. And I'd always had this like view, like Charles, you must be a doctor, or you must like 
get a PhD, you must get a master's. And I never even considered that there's this other, like, there's way richer people uh, doing stuff. And so I never considered it. And now I, I kind of think that's the same thing with venture capital. Like, building a VC startup is kind of like the doctor of the startup world. Like, it's what everyone thinks that they want to do. It's like the kind of respectable way. Uh, your your mom's going to talk about you and like, oh, my son's a doctor. Or like, oh, or my son got VC funded. It seems very similar. It's a status symbol. But if you think about how to actually, like, make impact or make money or do things it's like not the, it's definitely not the only way and for a long time i sort of had this view that like being a doctor is more valuable than than running a safeway but it's, it's not at all uh and i think that's that's how it analogized to this vc versus not vc amazing uh i love i think the way you described that i think that's a perfect way because it's not necessarily good or bad it's just left or right you know is this a different path um amazing so on that note i'd love to wrap up this podcast i think sure. we could go on for another hour it feels like but i'd love to paraphrase the three big themes that we got from here the first is of course is thank you so much for sharing all of the learnings that you had as a startup engineer uh from uc berkeley to your uh, stories building uh, social robotics uh for sad or happy little cars uh making uh, emoji faces uh uh to uh where you are um you know doing a bunch of startups and giving one last shot uh, and going off to Vietnam and turning out that you got to convert your passion for coding into something that you actually love teaching and um, scaling that out uh, to coder schools. So it's just amazing to convert that um, experience to uh, yeah, being able to, to change your passion into your work, right? Uh, and secondly, thank you so much for actually talking uh, briefly about you know, I think constraints versus innovation, I think you talk about it in different domains. Obviously, you talk about it from the framework dynamic. We talked about it as well from the context of Vietnam and the US. We talked about it in the context of how you see it at Coder School, about what you're doing and designing to make it much more compelling uh, for people in Vietnam and for other uh, emerging markets and Southeast Asian countries uh, across the world. Um, and lastly, thank you for the knowledge that you dropped. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you were very self-deprecating about the fact that, you know, you got lucky and, and so on and so forth. I just think you had a very mature and professional point of view about what you call fundraising life hacks, <laughs> you know, uh, about, I think, first of all, being thoughtful about the billion dollar market size, uh, not from a moral, you know, billion dollars good, you know, million dollars bad <laughs> dynamic, but really looking at it as, you know, it's a choice to make from a personal decision. Um, and secondly, being thoughtful about choosing uh, your VC partner in terms of whether they're going to help you be an energy tax uh, that slows you down and uh, versus someone that you're excited to write your investor update and be clear about communication and problem solve with and, uh, you know, de-risk the company together and, you know, create an amazing uh, company uh, for customers and employees together. So on that note, Charles, thank you so much for coming on the MHV podcast. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the MHV podcast, please share this episode with your friends and colleagues. Go to www.monkshill.com for more founders' journeys, company building advice, and insights into regional tech trends.